Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 208 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hope you all are doing well and enjoying this holiday season as much as you can during this global pandemic time. Today, we welcome Dr. Ali Mushtaq on our show. We're going to talk about BDSM. We're going to talk about Islam and how Ali navigated this realm as, as someone who grew up in a conservative Pakistani family and then came out as someone who identifies as gay and now he's teaching BDSM. Before I tell you more about this episode, I wanted to invite you guys to take our quiz. A few months ago, I created this quiz on how to be a great lover because many of my clients, they all they always ask me, what does it mean to be a good lover? And I looked into a number of different research studies and drafted this quiz. It takes about five to seven minutes to take the quiz and you get an immediate response and you learn what are some of the areas that you can focus on if you want to be a better lover and what are some of the areas that you're doing excellent. So as I shared with you guys that our guest is Dr. Ali Moshtar. We're going to talk about how he uses BDSM as we for social justice and empowerment. Ali has his PhD in sociology from University of California, San Francisco, and master's in social and demographic analysis from University of California, Irvine. He's Mr. Long Beach Letter 2016 and has been profiled by numerous editorial, including the New York Times. He found and owns Getting Wolfy LLC, which provides education related to diversity and empowerment. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ali Moshta. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Ali Mushtaq on our show. Ali, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so curious to learn about you and all the wonderful things that you're doing. I was just sharing with you before I started the recording that I read some of the articles that you were kind of featured on in LA Times and all of different media. And what a fascinating background that you have. And I'm very excited to hear about how you arrived to this place. So tell me, how did you get interested and how, how did you get introduce the world of BDSM. Oh, okay. So basically, I grew up in a very conservative area. Um, it's in Orange County. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, but basically, you know, I always knew that I was different. And so, I mean, I, I grew up in a very conservative area where, like, you know, I, I came out at 15 and I remember people, like, ridiculing me and making me feel bad because I happened to be a sexual minority. But also what happened was um, I also got involved in things like trying to, like, make the world better. So, I tried to start a GSA, Gay Straight Alliance, at my high school, only to be met with resistance. So it was unfortunate that in the early beginnings of my um, teenage years where this sort of occurred, like it was sort of like I was trying to feel who I was and I always knew I was different, but I didn't know how to like, you know, really like exist with people who didn't understand that. So I thought the best way to do it 
is to change the world I lived in so I could be more comfortable. And so what happened was I ended up going to college and I ended up realizing that, yeah, I'm around people that are able to sort of accept the fact that I'm gay. But at the same time, I noticed that like there wasn't any place for me to really explore who I was as a sexual being. So what happened was I ended up going to graduate school for my PhD in uh, UCSF. And so I moved from Orange County to San Francisco. And I ended up going to Folsom Street Fair literally the first week into my move of uh, my PhD. So what happened was I got exposed to the world of leather and BDSM. And so I was exploring and I ended up realizing like this is something that I was into. But what ended up happening was I started to see like there were a lot of things that also needed to be done so like again I grew up in a post 9-11 era people were very Islamophobic and so I was seeing bits and pieces of this sort of racism and other forms of isms that were happening around me even in the leather world so for me like I wanted to find a way to sort of address the fact that I am somebody who's into BDSM and leather because I realized I liked it but then also to coexist with my peers so again there were different mechanisms through which that happened so for example there's something called the title system where people ended up becoming like the Miss Americas of the leather community. And so I ran for a couple contests, didn't work, but then I ended up winning Mr. Long Beach Leather. And since then, the rest has been history where, for example, I've been able to use the profile and platform I've developed to sort of bring attention to questions about diversity, not only in terms of questions about race, but also being able to empower others, especially with other minorities, in terms of being able to actually actually get them to sort of explore who they are. And so now what I do is I sort of help people explore who they are and I give them a framework and the tools they need to sort of address this. Fascinating. It's wonderful that you came out when you were 15. My listeners that they know that I grew up in Iran, I moved here when I was 17. And I feel like it's my experience that some Middle Eastern families, they're not necessarily open about sexual minorities. What was your experience of coming out like? Yeah, so in general, like my family's been relatively supportive compared to a lot of uh, families. And you're right, absolutely right. Like there is a lot of conservatism. Like, so for example, I grew up Muslim. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Islam, it's sort of seen as like this religion that's super strict and it's super like really, really like, it's a basically I like to think about it as like a different version of being Catholic Um, and so basically you know there was some tension I remember early on in my family where there were certain issues but then like it was interesting because like you know they come from like this the old world right they come from this place where like they don't have much uh, education around gender and sexuality so they think immediately oh well maybe he wants to become a woman if he identifies as gay you know that kind of idea and it's like no no grandma no grandpa that's not what happened and so I ended up having to then help facilitate those conversations and then and then essentially like you know as time went on uh, my family became very accepting for the most part. That's wonderful that after giving having some information about this kind of like differences and about what uh, one's sexual orientation is it seems like your family were welcoming it's unfortunate that many families are not able to 
adjust and that can create the rupture in, in family system. But it's beautiful that your family were kind of welcoming and supportive of you throughout this journey. It's interesting that it's, I think it's one thing kind of coming out as someone who's gay and I think that's another thing publicly being kind of expressing that this is something you're interested in in the kind of later community and BDSM. How was their kind of community's reaction to that? Was it similar, different? Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened was, I mean, I think at least with my family, like they were at first, well, because they're just like, okay, well, he's gay. So it's like, we can't just ask him to constantly get married to a woman. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really bad. <laughs> so I think at that point, they just kind of had like an all bets are off approach where it's like, all right, well, I mean, if he's already gay, so it's like, what can we do? <laughs> <laughs> so they were kind of relatively okay. Did they know about BDSM community? They knew about it and they were obviously they were just like, oh, I can't, he's doing that now. So it's like, okay. So, I mean, that's just who he is. And, you know, they've, uh, they've then eventually were like, well, I mean, this is like what he's doing. He's not hurting anybody unconsensually. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, we then will just sort of accept it. Mm-hmm. Fabulous, fabulous. It seems like they they sound hundred times more open-minded than many of the families that I work with in my practice. And I think that's that's definitely a wonderful thing. Yeah, indeed. And like, you know, in terms of like what I do, like, you know, I'm very aware that there are people that are, are dealing with a lot of internalized homophobia and they feel like they are turned away by their families. And so what I've done is I've sort of thought about the ways in which basically society sort of where they're uh, affects the way they think about these issues. So I basically help people through my program to deal with it and to identify it and then deal with it as they're sort of able to. So, And I think that's very important, seeing someone that's uh, highly educated like you, but they're also open about their sexuality and who they are and they're comfortable and confident about it. That can help many people to find guidance and also courage to kind of follow that path. I know that you were talking about the kind of like the misunderstanding that people have. And I'm kind of curious, what what are some of the misconceptions that people have when it comes to BDSM work? Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. So, I mean, people think they, they sort of have one or two ideas. So on one end, like there's this sort of elusive, like, oh, it's like 50 stages of BDSM where people are just taking like floggers and whips and like beating, beating each other senseless and like in these sort of unconsensual ways. And they're like, oh, I don't like that. And then on the other hand, they also think where, you know, it's this idea of, of pathology where it's like, wow, like, you know, like, oh, my God, like you're, everybody's doing this and it just means you're dirty, you're depraved, they're, you're perverted and all these sort of medicalized ideas of pathology that are sort of associated with these alternative sexualities that aren't based on vanilla practices. So, yeah, I mean, on one hand is the exotic and the other hand is the pathology. And I think it's interesting that, you know, you use it as a vehicle and tool for empowerment and kind of like creating kind of it's an element of social justice for you. Tell us how did you make how do you bridge that? So a lot of my research and my background, so my research, actually, like I have several peer-reviewed manuscripts that focus on things like race and equality, sexuality and equality and all these kinds of things. But then also like in my scholars, parts of my scholarly background, I've taught multiple courses that look at diversity and inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, why not integrate that with my public platform, which is all about inclusivity and BDSM? 
So essentially, like the way I deal with questions about empowerment and BDSM is I sort of take a sort of intersectional approach to teaching people about BDSM. So specifically, like, you know, what are some of the factors that might sort of not only draw one into BDSM, but some of the factors that they might have problems working through. So for example, there's something in BDSM called race play, where some people exoticize the idea of basically like that, that relationship between a master and a slave from like the 1800s. So, and, and again, like uh, even though in society we've moved on from that, there's a lot of people that tend to reproduce that in the bedroom. So basically for me, like I, I talk, I actually have a unique aspect in terms of what I do in my programs where we sort of, I, I teach people that like, yeah, like, you know, that's, you know, that's headed, that's sort of couched in this position of a historical framing of racism. But then like, here are some ways to move on using communication strategies because again like if you were to in the bedroom say something that might be off, you know off color or something in the bedroom to somebody of color that might ruin everybody's time you know essentially <laughs> so the idea behind that is you know I, I stress communication and even like you know for those of who those who want to experiment with things like paddling or spanking or something you know there's certain assumptions that they're making with their partner and especially because of all these other aspects of how we actually have a sexual moment so again like I teach the communication skills to help them mitigate those issues. Well, for our listeners that they might not familiar with race play, I know everything can be very different, almost as the story that you create, but what would be a kind of a common theme on those scenes might, might be like? What uh, would in a race? Oh, I see, I see. So basically, um, well, as I mentioned, like they sort of reproduce this sort of master-slave dynamic from slavery. So what they might do is um, they might basically use certain off-color language to basically dehumanize the person of color simply because that's what they use during slavery. They might actually uh, maybe try to recreate it somehow by using like a flogger or a whip. And again, like just because you're using a flogger or a whip doesn't automatically mean you're doing race play, but just the idea that like you're using that language and you're sort of setting up that situation to make it like a master slave relationship from slavery mm-hmm. and so within the, and especially like uh, a lot of folks with communities of color they also notice that like they they deal with situations where when they have a sexual partner they're actually getting like you know like like they're actually using this language with them in the bedroom and so when they do that i mean again it's on a basis of like their identities sort of being infringed on and so that creates a dissonance for their identities yeah that's fascinating and i think bringing awareness to that it it is a challenging task because you're right that there are certain terms that trigger some of the transgenerational trauma and all of the trauma that can one can experience but still you want to create that kind of like power play so it's Mm -hmm. tricky to what to use or how to bring it on do you teach them about the history how do you inform people yeah, you're absolutely right. So what I do is um, in my section, in, in addition to introducing the fundamentals of BDSM, I talk about like consent being part of this. And so, of course, like that's sort of the basics of any like sexual interaction. And so basically I talk about like, OK, so not only am I teaching them consent, but I'm also bringing it up to the cultural level where it's like, well, OK, if somebody's not consenting to this and therefore you're infringing on their identities at that mm-hmm. point, you're infringing on their personhood. So basically the way to 
mitigate that is to understand like, okay, so these are the stereotypes I might have. This is a historical perspective. And this is sort of where we, uh, this is how you mitigate it. So for example, like being like, okay, so I mean, if this happens in the bedroom, this is what, you know, this is yeah, ahead of time in the negotiation. If this happens, how do we respond to it? Is this okay that this is happening? You know, to what extent uh, that, you know, at what point do you say no? Uh, and not only that, but also empowering the other person to say no because again we know of many situations where people still like go on with the situation if you know they they just don't feel comfortable leaving for whatever reason because they they feel like they're less of a person or they want to make the other person happy etc cetera, etc cetera. so what ends up, so basically i teach them to say no or to say you know or like how to bring these up in a way where it's equal to them but also being able to like communicate I love that. And I agree that your the key term is communication, because I know sometimes things that people play in the bedroom, the, some of the uh, excitement of it is like some of the stuff are politically incorrect. And it's your bedroom, you can use whatever language you want, but it's important to make sure that both parties are uh, consenting to this language and if they're enthusiastic and excited about this play. And I, I think like giving, putting it in the context of history also can help people to have more awareness about, okay, where is this coming from? And also empowering people that this, if this is something that doesn't, it's not okay for you, it doesn't feel comfortable, it doesn't mean that like you have to go go along with it if you want to be part of this scene. So I think these are fascinating and important things to discuss. Well, absolutely. And I mean, as you probably also are aware that you know, gender is a huge part of this too. I mean, like even with the role play, I mean, I talk about even clarifying pronoun usage because I even ta- I give the example of like a cis man, right? And it's like, well, if you call him a woman as a submissive, that's probably going to turn him on. But if you say that to a trans woman, that's not going to, like that's her identity. So, so at that point, it's like, not only are we doing this to be, you know, respectful, but we're also doing this to make sure that that the other person actually is getting turned on by the entire situation. So I feel like the more respectful you are, the better the play will be. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the approach I take in my uh, workshops. And that, that makes sense. So you can escalate things. Things can be, get exciting if you are mindful of how to navigate these things. And mm-hmm. it seems like you help them to repair any rupture that mm-hmm. creates during the scene and how can we do about go about that and you know in the website as i was reviewing your website you mentioned that about the spirituality piece Mm -hmm. and i know that i share with you i'm coming from this similar background with kind of uh, grew up in a muslim community and it's hard to so i'm not practicing my lessons i know that but but i i I think it's hard to navigate spirituality when you're leaning into your sexuality so how do you incorporate that that's a very good question. And I think that, you know, the way I do it is I sort of take it back to our roots. So as you know, like there's some aspects of Islam, like for example, that practice self-flagellation, right? Like during Maharam, <laughs> you know, yeah. So basically- oh, they're, That they're, is an interesting twist. Yeah. I haven't thought about it in the yeah, context yeah. of- uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically what I did was, um, well, I talk about the parallels between what they do in Maharam and the idea that they're self engaging in self-flagellation because they're trying to get, establish that connection 
to a God or a higher power. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's, I take a non-denominational approach, so it doesn't matter what your religious background is, if you have any, mm-hmm. but the idea behind it is that you're able to connect with other, you know, something other than yourself or like other people on a level where it really focuses on the ability to connect. Because I know that every, especially now during coronavirus, we're in a situation where everybody feels isolated. They feel lonely. And so I sort of offer them a tool to sort of establish like, Hey, like, you know, my goal is to connect or my, my, my intention is to connect or to really sort of undo some of the traumas or the bad thing that's happened to me. And so I give them a way to sort of work through that. And so it's almost like I'm trying to sort of hit home the message, I guess, throughout the entire thing is that, you know, we really are just one person regardless of our differences Mm -hmm. and to really honor the human being regardless of our race, our gender, our sexuality, and to really just focus on the idea that we are able to connect to each other. And and by undoing all of the emotional blocks within ourselves, we're able to better connect and we'll be better people. And incidentally, through through BDSM, that's the way to do it. That's fascinating. And I never, I haven't thought about it from that angle, but what, what you brought up that completely makes sense. And you know, what's interesting is when I, I have colleagues, I have clients that they are part of the uh, BDSM community. And what, what I never seen a sub person of color in a sense that coming from a Middle Eastern background within that community, is it, is there a big representation of people from a kind of Middle Eastern background in that community? Or it's, I'm kind of curious about the diversity and I know it's very different. So I bet it's different in Germany than in the United States. But what do you see in perhaps in the U.S. or in California? It seems like your practice in California. Yeah, so that's actually an interesting question because you're right. Like, I think, you know, when I when I talk about my presentations, when I do like BDSM and race talks and stuff like that, I do notice that there are even BDSM cultures because of the different demographics. So in the United States, there's an emphasis on diversity, for example, where people are solely being inclusive of people who are not necessarily white, not necessarily heterosexual, not necessarily cisgendered men. So there's a lot of diversity here. But in, but in terms of South Asians, there's several of us that are in the community but again, like we're, we're sort of a dime a dozen. Like I know like the one person from Seattle versus the one person from, um, one person from like Washington, <laughs> but, but, um, but then I hear other stories. Like for example, like there's some folks from Pakistan and, and other countries that want to get into it from England, but they, they, they're not necessarily given like uh, they're not necessarily given footing because they, the race and culture works very different there. And not only that, but even like the types of things that are fetishized or things that can be fetishized vary from the thing the, vary from the U S versus um, places like in England and Germany. So for example, being conscious about race plays and uh, that is an issue. And that's something that, you know, that, that can sometimes dehumanize rather than empower that we were very cognizant about that, at least marginally in the United States versus, is you wouldn't necessarily see that happen in places like Europe. But then I, actually, interestingly, if you look at BDSM in different countries, though, so like, for example, people like in India, for example, they're very curious about all this. And so for them, they're, they're sort of still in the position of learning things like consent and affirmative consent and being able to sort of say like, hey, like, you know, yes means yes kind of thing. So everybody's sort of in different places with their play. But that's just sort of what I've noticed when, in terms of uh, my experiences with these communities. How can a community be more inclusive with people of color? Is it like including them in the place or because I would imagine like you are into what you're into, similar to kind of our erotic template. So how can what, what are some of the effort to make things things more inclusive? 
Yeah. So basically, I think there are multiple levels when you talk about BDSM, because I mean, you know, people, as, as you might be familiar with that, you know, people engage in BDSM without even knowing it. Hmm. Right. So, I mean, there are different levels. I mean, so, for example, there's a representation on the institutional level where you're including people of color on like, you know, flyers for events and stuff like that to really say like, hey, we're inclusive here. But then there's also the question of being inclusive on the play level where people are being educated to realize, like, for example, if you play with a non-white partner and you're like flogging them on their back, like, you know, you might not necessarily see red. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so just that even that awareness that like, you know, like you might not even see like the 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 color st- uh, color come out so then like it is and, and then when you're flogging them it's like well when is the limit to like not do this or what is the limit to like gauge to like slow down or something like that so i mean that's really important and then again that goes back to the cultural stereotypes and the history etc cetera, etc cetera. this is but I, I think that like you know there's that level as well but also just again using simple communication techniques to sort of address this mm-hmm. you know it's like okay so like not only are you looking at a visual cue but then you're also looking at things like body language like if they're like tensing up and stuff like that and they're continuing to do so but then also things like you know are you able to talk about it are you able to talk through like hey like is this too intense for you or are you you know that kind of thing and i know and it kind of breaks the mood a little bit so then again it's up to you to kind of like you know work it in but at the same time it's like you know there is multiple ways that we can integrate diversity into even our practices so this so even going back to the folks that are not even interested in BDSM it's the question of like being able to communicate and being able to be like yeah like you know even though I might not visually see certain things that I'm used to what are some of the ways in which uh, what I can what are some of the which uh, we can communicate and again through verbal communication through and through specific communication ways in which we can actually get that diversity and inclusivity because I think when we're talking about diversity we're talking about the ability to affirm somebody who's different than us right you know to, to affirm that you know not only are you a person but that your sex life matters mm-hmm. and that your sexual pleasure matters and I know that like if, if you look at even like the history of like the women's organ in this country right mm-hmm. the question of like how doctors didn't even know and psychologists didn't even know where like well, clitoral orgasms were a thing right? right and so it's a similar process where it's like we're learning to now sort of being inclusive not just of gender differences but also things like race differences etc cetera, etc cetera, when we are engaging in sexual pleasure I think those are, are very valid and important important topics you brought up. And I love that. I'm always passionate about kind of understanding how race plays into all of these plays. And I, I love the different elements that you talked about, different parts that you talked about that one can include to make sure people of all sorts with all sorts of diversity might be kind of get included in the community. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear that like if there's a person of color listening to this podcast they're curious about power exchange where can they explore it more because i love that you said like many many people already doing elements of this in their sexual life that there is the that's they don't know it is part of this power exchange but what are some of the things people can do if they're specifically interested in exploring this well, there's a lot of resources out there. I mean, de- depending on where you live, um, there are separate, certain nonprofits that focus on learning BDSM. There are 
there are also places like dungeons and play spaces. There are places that sell erotic wear. There are places, uh, I mean, there are multiple places. There's also like websites and stuff, but specifically there's the one I'm developing that focuses on this idea of how is it that you can play, but also do so inclusively. And so in general, that's sort of where I'm providing a lot of my tools to folks. So then that way they can improve their sex life regardless of whoever they are. And so again, the way I think about it is the more you are inclusive, the better your play will be regardless of, you know, how is it that, you know, regardless of whether you're a racial minority or not. So then that way it's like, you know, you're the more inclusive you are, the less mistakes you'll make, quote unquote, and then, you know, everybody will be, you know, happy. And so happy people equals, you know, less angry people. <laughs> well, that makes sense. And Ali, I, I love that you talked about your website and your resources because I feel like like any realm of sex and sexuality and sexual play, things can go very wrong. Like people can see things in porn and my, my listeners know there's nothing wrong with porn, but it's not sex act. So if you're seeing a scene in the porn and like perhaps you might need more education on what to do to implement it in your bedroom. So I love that you are developing these programs and resources. So tell us more about your programs. What, what would they entail? So basically, my my program is essentially the standard BDSM education, which is essentially things like consent and negotiation. But I take it a step further because in general, like I don't believe in telling people like, okay, so to engage in BDSM, you always have to spank somebody or something. I believe that everybody should be empowered to make their own decisions and to use their creativity to build, you know, their own BDSM interactions. So what I did is I developed a program that allows people to build their sexual experiences however they want but then what I do is I then sort of take that uh, that level a step further and then I say like okay so based on your, how you're doing what you want now let's do some inside work and you and, and understand like why you're into certain sexual things and then through that what I do is I sort of point out sort of the cultural historical things that might affect their negotiation or their interpretation of sexuality and then I have them work on work through in order to actually become more sexually empowered so now not only are you getting the BDSM for BDSM sake, but then you're also doing the inside work that can hopefully get them to become happier, essentially, mm. and to experience sexuality more freely. And by being able to sort of identify those factors, what I do is then I take it to the next level where we talk about the spiritual aspect of BDSM. So it's like now that we're working on ourselves as individuals, now let's see how we can bridge it onto a more collective sphere. So it's almost like you're not only learning the tools of BDSM, you know, and of course I talk about flogging, spanking, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, just, but just being able to not only do the inside work that's required to explore these things in a non-triggering kind of way. And if you have triggers, like, you know, what are some of the ways we can work through them? But then also talking about ways in which we're able to then connect after we're sort of done with that work. So it's like now that we've sort of talked about this, now that we've brought these out to the forefront, you know, I then sort of talk about it from the perspective of, of spirituality and then being able to connect. So not only are you able to play in an erotic level, but then you're also able to play on the spiritual level as well. And then that way, it's like there's this sort of dialectic of being able to kind of say, yeah, like I'm into sexuality, I'm into BDSM, but it's not not just because I'm turned on by it, but it's also because I'm able to now connect with other people. And so, because again, like we all feel lonely and we all feel like, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't know about others, but I mean, I've been sort of locked out in my house for the last eight months. So basically, I mean, I even provide individual mode 
modes of BDSM play and being able to able to sort of get people to understand like, okay, so you can actually work through these issues because, you know, I know that a lot of therapy and psychology focuses on the individual, but it's also the question of the cultural background. And it's like really being able to understand like, why do I find X people attractive? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of like I give this example of coronavirus porn where like, for example, like uh, I remember since the pandemic, like people like suddenly started making coronavirus porn. It's like, well, those historical circumstances affect what their sexual desires were. And so incidentally, coronavirus porn was born. And so with that example, I, it, that's sort of how I sort of approach empowerment and being like, well, yeah, like because we have these certain historical modes of, you know, relating to one another, like things like, uh, you know, misogyny, sexism, as well as racism, et cetera, et cetera. How can we then work inward? And then how can we even undo those things? So not only are we dealing with a sort of undoing of sexual trauma, but we're also doing a, a sort of reprogramming of cultural acceptance and cultural connectedness. And so, and I even make clear, like, you know, I'm not a licensed psychologist. I'm a sociologist. So a lot of my expertise is in culture and society. But, and so I refer to folks to therapists when appropriate. But at the same time, it's like, I just have something to offer in the sense of, well, this is my background in this society that how, let me use it to say, if you can use it as a tool to help you, if you, if this is something that you are interested in. Ali, I think that's fabulous that you provide that because I think our sexuality can open the door to our understanding of ourselves and our psyche. I, I Part of my practice working with sex therapy clients, but even with all of my clients, we talk about sex and sexuality because it can give us lots of good information about who we are, what are we drawn, our desire. So I think it's wonderful that you created this program, that you teach people the tools and strategies and skills they need, but also, you added this other component of let's let's kind of take a look at what can we do to help you to use this as a way to understand yourself better and connect connect with yourself and previous generations. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, as a, as a therapist and counselor, you've also seen probably even when sexuality goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of folks concern is when they're like, oh, well, like, what if I get into a situation where like I'm constantly being like beat over unconsensually. Right. So I even address those dynamics as well. So like, you know, I, when I teach, I've taught, I've done workshops for MFT, uh, LMFT students. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the, the common question I get is like, well, how do you know when it becomes abuse? Mm-hmm. I get this every class I'm teaching when it's related to this and it's interesting because it's like well i mean when you even teach about domestic violence in uh, psychology courses it's like well like what is that line like so you're even like having to like gauge that too and, it, and i know as a professional it can be very difficult mm-hmm. so for me it's like you know again i even mentioned like that if you have a certain situation you need to get it checked out by an actual professional so just so you know <laughs> but at the same time based on my experiences i mean i do i have known of situations that have gone wrong so this is and i hear the tool for you to realize like okay so like what are the sort of checklists that you can kind of go through to, for at least you know you have some kind of gauge or some kind of mirror for you to be like yeah maybe this might be not something that's for me or that this, this dynamic might not be okay so 
basically what I do is I get them to a stage where they're able to go to somebody like you in terms of your expertise to be like, yeah, like this might be happening. Please evaluate. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that more situations, cause I mean, I've seen it happen countless times where, you know, somebody has, you know, got done these things and they have gone awry. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I want to be able to make sure that people don't have to endure these situations and to mitigate them as much as possible. So basically when it, my goal is to just make sure people are happy and they're empowered and they're also doing this idea of empowerment through this idea that they are willing to consensually express who they are mm-hmm. and so again like it's it, there's a gender dynamic as well but I mean I've seen countless examples even in queer and gay communities where this has happened mm-hmm. so I mean and then it's like you know then yeah, how is it that we're able to not only explore our sexuality but again consent becomes part of that freedom right where you're able to then withdraw that consent and again this, this is not only on the dynamic level where, you know, we, we understand that certain norms can be naturalized, but again, like, where do those norms come from? You know, what is the context around those norms? And like, what are some of the ways in which we can counter them through actual practices? Well, I think you brought up such a wonderful, important point. And I appreciate that you have that kind of view of that, like any kind of sexual act, not necessarily only with BDSM, that things can go extreme in a wrong way, become abusive. I've seen it in monogamous couples that are quote unquote vanilla, I said, and all sorts of relationships. But specifically when you talk about consent, I think actually the BDSM community, they're doing a fabulous job with communication most of the time and negotiation and aftercare. So I think like they are are doing a better job than the rest of us. But I feel like there is, I've seen situations that people are on a 24-7 kind of a power exchange situation. And then how would that be as far as consent? What is it? Do you teach people how frequently people need to check in about consent? So for me, like I, I, I adopt the, in, in our program, we adopt the affirmative consent action where basically consent can be withdrawn at any time. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially like the idea that consent's ongoing. There's other dimensions to that as we talk about, but we have actual safeguards within the play itself to actually say like, hey, like if I don't like this, we need to stop somehow. Mm-hmm. So I actually provide different scenarios where like for example you know i talk about like how how during a scene like you can either use safe words or you can use the red yellow green system but we also talk about like how even though when you're in the bdsm world like it's about being aware that there are risks so and it's this idea that like you know things that you might be doing might have all these risks not only physical but also emotional and psychological as well so again and it's true with any sexual activity but just the idea that we're making that explicit for people so they at least understand like yeah i mean if you're gonna go out and suspend yourself like you know you're gonna like there's a risk involved so i mean in that way it's like it sort of gives them the agency to make their own decisions but i think for a lot of folks like they don't they feel like you know they they've either had their trust or consent infringed upon in some way because they didn't say anything or in another experience is they've basically been in situations where it was never given at all so again like what i do is i sort of give them the tool the communication tools to sort of stress that like yeah you are an agent in this uh, situation where you can make those decisions Mm-hmm. That's fabulous. So I bet many of our listeners there are curious about where they can find your program, your courses. So tell us more about how can they reach you? 
Sure. Thank you so much. So basically, my email is ollie at G-E-T-T-I-N-G Wolfie, W-O-L-F-I-E dot com. You can find me at gettingwolfie.com, G-E-T-T-I-N-G W-O-L-F-I-E dot com. There's also my Instagram and Twitter, Getting Wolfie. And then I have a Facebook page. So, uh, you know, I'm definitely, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to meeting some of your listeners. Wonderful. And the information will be in the show notes if people people want to check those out. Ali, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was very informative for me and I bet many of our listeners learned a lot from our conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Moali. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation useful. I love Ali's approach when it comes to teaching about BDSM. When I hear about BDSM, when I think about BDSM, I always think about, I think about this Caucasian, maybe European, German man doing this power exchange. And I love that he was focusing on inclusivity, which was very important. And since I met Ali, I've been obsessed with his Instagram account. It's so engaging and educational. A few days ago, he had his grandmother and he was teaching her about flocking, which was fascinating. I highly encourage you to check it out. As always, if you like this show, remember to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Your reviews really matters. Thank you for tuning in and we'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.